This Institute of Ideas podcast is called The UK Economy After Brexit. Sink or swim. And was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2016 at the Barbican in London. Hello, uh, so I'm Rob Lyons. I'm the convener of the Institute of Ideas Economy Forum. And uh, I'd like to welcome you to this, the final debate, entitled The UK Economy After Brexit, Sink or Swim. Now, this is, I think, without doubt, one of the hottest political and economic uh, debates of the moment. Before the referendum, we were told that a vote to leave would have dire consequences for the UK economy. Few economic commentators, experts and officials thought otherwise. The picture since the vote seems to have been mixed. Economic output has been much more resilient than expected, and stock markets have rebounded after early falls. On the other hand, the pound has been spiralling downwards, as anyone travelling abroad will have noticed with dismay. I had the experience a couple of weeks ago of uh, travelling to a Battle of Ideas event in Amsterdam and trying to draw €40 Euros out of the... Uh, cash machine at, uh, at um, Stansted and discovering to my horror it was asking me for £41 in return. <laughs> uh, I, thought, I think, no, I'll wait till I get to Amsterdam. Anyway, um, but what of the longer term? Just how much is the future prosperity of the UK going to be dependent on the EU? Can we have our cake and eat it, as uh, Boris Johnson claims, or will there be no cakes at all just salt and vinegar for everyone, as EU Council President Donald Tusk says. Uh, have we as a country committed economic suicide, or is there a bright future of Britain going out into the world? Or maybe all this discussion of Brexit misses the point about the real problems and the possibilities for the UK economy. So to uh, discuss all this, I think we've got a very good panel uh, of uh, speakers uh, for this, this final debate. I'll, I'll introduce them in the order that they're going to speak. So first to speak will be on my near left, Daniel Moylan. He's the former Deputy Chairman of Transport for London. He's a Conservative councillor and he's co-chairman of Urban Design London. Next to speak on my far left is Merrin Somerset-Webb. Uh, Merrin uh, has been a scholar, a producer of business programmes in Japan for public TV, service TV in Japan, and an institutional broker for SBC Warburg. She was uh, editor of Money Week when it was founded in 2000 and has recently become editor-in-chief of the magazine. Uh, then on my far right, Andreas Wesselman is a partner at Ashcombe Advisors LLP, a corporate finance firm in London. Uh, he's author of The Abolition of Deposit Insurance and, he, and the editor of Chronicle of a Downfall, Germany 1929 to 1939. And finally, on my near right, Phil Mullen, He's an economist and business manager. He's author of The Imaginary Time Bomb, Why an Aging Population is Not a Problem. Excuse me for a moment. I have the Battle of Ideas cold, which I think everybody else has got. Uh, his new book, uh, Creative Destruction, How to Start an Economic Renaissance, will be published by Policy Press in spring next year. I've asked the panel to speak for five to seven minutes each uh, to outline their thoughts on the topic, and then uh, we'll come out to you for your comments and questions. So without any further ado, Daniel. Uh, thank you. Anyone who has come here today uh, looking for reliable predictions as to what the economy is going to look like in a few years' time post-Brexit will, I fear, be deceived. I'm going to make only one prediction, um, and, and that is that we are going to be heading for a hard Brexit. And I just want to explain why that is and what I mean by it. 
Um, there is an idea that somehow the Article 50 talks, when we start them, um, are about a free trade agreement for the future. They're not. Uh, the treaty, I think, is relatively clear. The Article 50 talks, on which there is a two-year time limit and which uh, require qualified majority voting for approval, are essentially about the divorce arrangements, about the leaving arrangements, rather than about our future relationship with the European Union. And that, if we want a free trade agreement with the European Union, will require um, um, unanimity amongst all the states, including Wallonia and various places, uh, that we only have a dim awareness had a say in the matter, um, and will take, in my view, a great deal longer than two years. So my prediction is that we should be planning on the basis that in two years after we leave, after we trigger Article 50, we'll be trading on WTO terms with the rest of the world. But I would also say, even for that to happen, of course, while our membership of the WTO is secure and unassailable, our functionality within it depends on negotiating and agreeing a whole set of schedules that need to be accepted by every other state who is a member. And I would strongly recommend Liam Fox, if he isn't wholly focused on that, to be thinking very heavily about that now. Um, if only as a fallback position, though I think a position we will certainly be falling back onto. So that's my prediction. And then I ask the question, if that's what's going to happen, do we need a free trade agreement with the European Union and with lots of other states? Uh, and do we want one? And it seems almost axiomatic that we should, because people seem to think that without a free trade agreement with other countries, you can't actually trade with them. Um, in fact, of course, free trade agreements represent a relatively recent digression from the mainstream of international trade. They've only become really popular in the last 25 or 30 years, and they carry costs with them. It was very interesting to note what the Premier of Wallonia said um, in his giving his reasons for not agreeing with the Canadian deal, and he speaks from a left-wing perspective. It wasn't because he objected to the free trade elements, it's because he thought it didn't say enough about the environment and the protection of workers. Most free trade agreements, a notional free trade agreement between the United States and Peru, for example, would consist very little about trade and a very great deal about the United States imposing on Peru, as a condition of that trade, all sorts of conditions about the levels of wages paid to workers, about environmental practices, and about standards, and so on. And as we go into those, we will find them becoming instruments that prevent us from deregulating our own economy, quite potentially. So I would simply say I'm not averse to free trade agreements, but I think we need to understand that they're not a panacea, and they won't always even be necessary or worth it in terms of the trade-off we have to make. In my view, we'd be better focusing our attention on the Doha round and trying to revive it, the World Trade Organization Doha round. And then I want to say something about the domestic economy, starting with inflation. I do want to say this. Uh, everyone here should try and understand, we've largely forgotten this, cost-push cost inflation is a myth. Um, inflation is a monetary phenomenon. If there is inflation in the UK economy at the moment, uh, it is no doubt partly explained by a long history of reckless quantitative easing and the printing of money, which inevitably is going to lead to inflation and which should be and could be reversed um, starting today. And I would like to see the Bank of England do that. But it simply isn't quantitative easing that we've got wrong. 
Uh, we also have a domestic policy agenda which stands on a degree of fiscal recklessness. There's a notion about that we've had austerity. We haven't had austerity. Austerity is a myth. Since 2008, we have carried on spending way beyond our means, both as a government and as a country. We have a large government deficit. We continue to spend more, ta more than the tax uh, take actually constitutes. And we have a trade deficit also with the rest of the world. So we're not actually imposing austerity. We're barely living within our means. And we need to address that. And then we need to look at issues of deregulation and supply-side reform that leaving the European Union actually give us. Now, the important thing about that domestic policy agenda, just two things to say about it in the minute, minute or two remaining to me, is first of all, it takes us directly into the field of politics. And that is one of the great advantages of leaving the European Union, of course, is that matters which previously, over the last 40 or year, so years, have not been matters of domestic political debate because no political party could change them, now actually become matters which can be in party manifestos and can be, um, and can be the, the basis of an elected government. The prescription I am giving you about monetary policy, about fiscal rectitude, about deregulation, is of course one stance. Another political party, another political trend, might put a different view in front of the country, and they'd be able, you know, you have elections and you see who gets elected. So that in itself is wholly to be welcomed. Um, the second thing to say about it, and this is my last remark, is that it brings home, I hope, to all of us, that actually in the big picture, Brexit is quite a small and marginal element in determining the future of this country's economy. By far and away, the biggest element is going to relate to getting the right domestic policies. In my view, we don't have them at the moment. We have an opportunity to pursue them. Others might take a different view on that. But it's our own domestic policy agenda, our own means of addressing the productivity problems that we've got in the country, none of which are directly related to Brexit, that actually will determine our future. And we should be really quite bad. I'm not saying Brexit's unimportant, but it's of marginal importance compared to the other issues, and we need a sense of proportion and a sense of focus if we're going to make this country a success in the future after we leave the European Union. Thank you very much. Thank you. <laughs> you don't have to stand up. <laughs> Thank you very much, Daniel. That was a, that was a great start. Um, Merrin. Sorry, I'm definitely not going to stand up. My children have a different half-term to all of yours, and we've just come to the end of 10 days. I'm not sure I can stand up for two minutes, let alone seven. Um, so uh, let me just pick up on a, on a few things. I agree with Daniel on all sorts of things, but I'd like to set a slightly different, bigger bigger picture, um, in which I, I will say that uh, I do think there are much, the UK economy has enormous problems, which I've been writing about for going on 20 years, and they remain the same and just getting worse and worse. And they set the, the scene for possibly why we voted for Brexit and uh, what effect Brexit might or, more, might or might not have. And the big problem, and I think we all know this, across the West, not just in the UK, is the debt. We talk about the debt all the time, but we've talked about it so much and so often, I think we've forgotten that the debt is the key thing driving everything that happens in Western economies at the moment. Public debt is, is close to record highs everywhere, but public to private debt combined, so household debt combined with public debt across the developed world is, is enormously high, 250 <coughs> 260%. And it is that debt 
that makes it difficult for us to grow or for us to reboot our economies at all. It keeps, it keeps our uh, government unable to do the things that it thinks it wants to do or that we demand it to do, which changes our relationship with our government. So we look at the government, <coughs> we want this, we want that, we want, you know, the left wants something, the right wants something. No one can have what they want from a government that is incredibly deeply in debt. And then we end up in the situation that we are at the moment where we have a, a constant political conflict between the population and the state, who, the population who feel they're being somehow defaulted on because they can't get any of the things they asked for. Hence, we have our rebellion against the elite, against a non-understanding government, against parliamentarians who don't appear to be listening, etc. So we have that problem. Then we have private debt, where we have companies and individuals heavily indebted and unable to move forward with things that they'd like to do as well. We call this um, intertemporal disequilibrium, which is a ridiculous phrase, but simply means that we have taken too much of the future into the present. <coughs> We've eaten tomorrow's lunch over and over and over and over and over and over, and there's no lunch left. <coughs> and we have to starve for a very long time if we want to get to a point where we're eating today's lunch. So these problems are enormous, and they're a backdrop to everything that is happening across Western economies. And so the big question that all economists constantly ask is, how do we deal with the debt? And you've had no end of solutions over the last five years, but they boil down to finding a way to default on debt that doesn't hurt too much. Now, direct default is obviously embarrassing, a bit awkward. The UK doesn't tend to do it. Our banks don't allow us to do it. So direct default doesn't happen that much. Um, we can have hyperinflation, uh, which... Um, uh, banks can produce, the central bank could easily go as high for inflation if they wanted. People often fall back on that. France managed it post-war for a couple of years, brought their uh, public debt to GDP down from 150% to 50-odd. It's a very effective thing to do. It's also incredibly dangerous. So we're not going to do that either. The um, next way is growth. You can have very, very fast GDP growth, which makes your debt you know, vaguely irrelevant because you've effectively grown it away to being a much smaller percentage of your economy than you would otherwise. But of course, when you're heavily in debt, it's almost impossible to grow fast. Uh, so that's a, that's a part of the problem. The other part of the problem, which um, I'm hoping maybe I can fill to say more on later, is demographics, uh, which makes it very difficult to grow fast. Now, like him, I don't believe that an aging population should be a problem, but if you have a very high level of debt, it can be a problem because it means that GDP growth tends to be lower than it is otherwise. So our, our cohort of most productive people who drive fast economic growth, which is between the ages of 25 and 54, has been falling relative to the, to the number of people in the rest of the population for several decades now. So that's a problem, and it can mean that growth is slower. So you get to the background to everything, which is what is the actual solution to this horrible debt problem? What's the one that actually works? And the only one that has a good history of working is what we call financial repression, which is where uh, the government and the central bank between them work out a way to steal little bits of money from you consistently over time until the problem goes <coughs> away. And we usually do this by using inflation at a reasonably low level and by keeping interest rates below inflation. That sound familiar? This is what we did in the UK between 1945 and 1980, and that's how we got rid of the debt in our economy. And this is what is most likely to be the thing that we see happening over the next 10 to 20 years. It's the only real way to get rid of a major debt problem in a major economy. That's the background to everything that's going on here. 
And I think it's the reason why we have so many, many conflicts between population and government that <coughs> brought us to, to the stage we're at at the moment. Now, I'd love to talk more about financial repression. I suspect I've already spoken for four minutes, right? So I will just move on to say that there are other ways to try and inject some growth into economies like ours. And one of the things that Western economies have all been desperately trying to do since the financial crisis is to drive growth in their own economies by shoving down their, uh, their uh, currencies. You know, everybody is mad to drive down the value of their own currency. You've heard about the currency wars. Everyone's trying to get their currencies down at the same time. Nobody can win unless they do something that looks to the rest of the world to be politically suicidal. <laughs> <laughs> then, which I don't believe it is, by the way, I think it's going to work out marvelously, uh, then you get the 20% fall in your currency that the rest of the world simply wouldn't allow you to have otherwise. And that brings you into a whole new world. Um, we've been very <coughs> in our financial sector for decades and decades. Everyone's been complaining about it relentlessly. The speculative inflows coming into the UK as a result of the huge success of our financial industry have kept our pound at unsustainably high levels. Okay. Um, now that begins to change, we can see that our exporters begin, can begin to start uh, pushing things along again, and we can see that our wages will come down relative, relative to global wages. And these two things might give us a little bit of breathing space so we can figure out a new reset for our economy, possibly along the way, as Daniel suggests, possibly along some other routes. But it gives us a breathing space to try and move forward. I'm going to stop right there. I could go on for half an hour. <laughs> Two very interesting points of view. Andreas, what do you think? Well, I think uh, uh, Brexit is a very substantial change in the UK's international economic and political relations, whose European aspects have been developed for 50 years. And it would be foolish to believe, uh, and nor would it be advisable, that you can disentangle those relationships over a very short period of time and to be able to do so without making causing significant economic dislocation. We are living in an international trading system that is extremely integrated and very complex, where many of the product standards and market regulations are set by agencies with UK representations, both inside and outside the EU. And it would be extremely naive to believe that one event, you know, leaving the European Union, can change this overnight. I think it is therefore best to think of Brexit not as an event, but as a process that may well take 10 to 20 years to complete. And if you have the patience and stamina for this, then there's no reason to believe that ultimately the economic consequences of it would be bad, although I find it hard to conceive how in the short term, you know, investment decisions uh, will not favor territories other than the UK until clarity is established as to how Brexit will be brought about. I mean, obviously the argument I'm making is really a political one, i.e. the economic consequences are really a function of how this is all resolved politically. And I think this process should really have three main elements to keep the damage or the dislocation, if you will, as small as possible. The first is obviously the withdrawal agreement itself, which will be concluded at the end of the two-year period after Article 50 notification, and which will cover things like the settlement of the very substantial contingent financial liabilities of the UK in the European Union, a new EU treaty for the remaining members, and so on. The second element, which would have to happen at the same time as the completion of this withdrawal agreement, would involve the UK joining EFTA, 
and the European economic area uh, at the same time. It's actually straightforward for the UK to do so. It already is a signatory to the EA agreement. None of the members there will object to the UK joining. And this would ensure that for the time being, 220 billion pounds of exports into Europe are protected by the UK retaining almost complete membership of the single European market. And in fact, it would basically address the concept of the future economic relationship with Europe, which is set out as a point of discussion in Article 50 in the EU treaty. The EU has no veto over the UK's intention of joining the EEA, and it would be in the interest of both parties to protect the single market, and hence I think that will be a very straightforward thing to achieve. Now in the third phase, that's the hard one, the UK would work with its EEA partners and the EU, now on the other side of the table, to strengthen and change the EEA agreement. And the ultimate objective would be to separate the single market from the three other pillars that make up the European Union's objectives. Those other three are justice and home affairs, economic and monetary union, and the common foreign policy. This may, over a period of 10 to 20 years, culminate in a significant reconfiguration of the European Union. And as a result, there's the potential of creating, in my view, a much better more stable economic and political partnership between different groups of like-minded European states. Such a three-step approach to Brexit would have very significant advantages and protect UK's economic performance. It would retain access to the single market, which is by far the most sophisticated free trade area in the world. The UK would cease to be subject to two-thirds of existing EU law and retain a degree of legislative autonomy by virtue of how the EFTA court, which is the ECJ equivalent, operates, which operates in a very different way from the ECJ, that is unavailable to EU members. The UK would have the opportunity not to introduce EU law into the EA agreement. You know, there are basically rights of reservation in the EA agreement to allow members to veto implementation of EEA or EU law. And it could also control migration if it wanted to by virtue of the safeguard provisions that are in the EA agreement of which you would find no trace in the EU treaties. These aspects which make the EA an extremely flexible political and economic animal are hardly known. In fact, I've never met anybody who knows about them. And they exist and they can be used and they will be used. In fact, the EU has used them. The EU has used itself the safeguard provisions in the EEA treaty. And the UK would be an independent member with an independent vote in a various range of international bodies. So it would satisfy a range of economic and political objectives. A hard Brexit, by contrast, so whether by a unilateral withdrawal from the EU treaties or the WTA option, would either breach international law, unilateral withdrawal, or in my view, it would be just an economic catastrophe. I mean, again, I can tell you, there is no major economy in the world that trades under WTO rules. None. The US has 38 trade agreements with Europe. China has 65, dating back to the late 1970s. You will have never heard of I'm sure most of us have never heard of this. Under WTO rules, the UK would lose complete access to the single market, 
and would have to negotiate a range of free trade agreements and, crucially, a raft of mutual recognition agreements for product standards and market regulation with all the countries in the world. It is not tariffs that is the problem of the WTA options. It is non-tariff barriers that are regulated via mutual recognition agreements that take years to negotiate. It would take a decade for the UK to replace the mutual recognition agreements that are currently in place in the EU. Patience and perseverance and a sense of realism and a full appreciation of the complexities of international economic relations are required to achieve a reasonably painless transition to a new European system in which the UK could and should play a leading role. I guess uh, whether that really will happen is, is open to question. And some may say, and I'm sure the other side will, will argue, that they're very much in favor of the UK being open to trade and the world. My sense is that in the decades to come, it will become less open, both economically and philosophically, and that that will be a damage to the UK economy. Thank you very much. And finally, Phil. Thanks. Well, for my opening comments, um, unlike Andreas, I'm going to assume that Brexit means Brexit, to paraphrase somebody, um, which is that leaving the EU means leaving uh, the single market and leaving the customs union. And my starting point is, I think, concurs with Daniel. Maybe I'm taking it a little bit further, which is that leaving those institutions, which is what people voted for, will, I think, have no definitive predetermined effect on the economy, whether for good or certainly whether for bad. Over the last 300 years, Britain has been uh, in all sorts of different types of trading uh, uh, relationships with others, with other countries, with other regions. I would say that none of these have on their own particular trading arrangements either made or broken the British economy. Being inside or outside the single market, I think, will have uh, uh, been no different. Instead, and concurring with Daniel, what has always been key for prosperity um, has been the economic condition at home. You know, high, strong, or weak is production. And that has always been a function of two things, the state of the fundamentals and the policies, the actions taken by uh, governments or not taken by governments to sort out what may be difficulties or barriers or challenges in the way of uh, uh, domestic economic activity. In particular, policies which relate to, I'd say, the underpinning of debt, in terms of Merrin's point, I think debt is important, but I think debt is a symptom of the fact that we have an abysmal productivity record, and I put the emphasis on that, because that's, we've been living off the future not because we're greedy and want to, you know, feel we, we you know, we want to uh, uh, fill ourselves with stuff from the future. We've been living off the future and living off debt because we've not been producing enough to be able to live off the present. So debt, to me, is a symptom of the abysmal productivity record, and that's what we should focus on. Now, of course, that way of looking at the Brexit debate is not the usual way, because the usual way is saying Brexit will be either bad for the economy or, in most cases, very bad for the economy or a few voices are saying, no, it'll be good for the economy or it'll have some, some upsides. What well, I say, my take would be that's a, a wrong way of looking at what's going to happen. But as, of course, there's going to be a huge battle still to be fought on this discussion, it's by no means over, we're just really in the early days, I think it's worth considering why so many people do have such a strong conviction um, that Brexit will be bad. Now, is it the economists that people are following with their gloomy forecasting models? That's been discussed a bit over the course of the last uh, couple of days. Um, but it's interesting to see that 
in most cases, people are pretty skeptical about economists. I mean, economists, until recently, were regarded as you know, worse than weather forecasters when it came to working out what was going to be happening in the future. People were generally skeptical that these economic models made some sense. But in this particular case, in the case of all the models that came out about Brexit, it seems that people um, uh, put that skepticism to one side and saw that these models were uh, authoritative. I think something else is really going on here rather than some newfound faith in, uh, in economists. The same people are quite gloomy about things. They're saying that there will be a, a, an automatically negative effect. Often highlight the economic uncertainties of Brexit. That's a big part of the discussion. It's going to be very uncertain what's going to happen. And I agree that the term uncertain is entirely appropriate for the eventual form of the economic relationships, the thing that, uh, that Andreas was talking about, the eventual form of the uh, trading relationships, not just between Britain and what's left of the EU, but between Britain and the rest of the world. It's bound to be uncertain because those relationships depend upon negotiations which are going to go on between Britain and 27 other countries and various assemblies and many other parts of the world which uh, Britain will be negotiating with because it will have the freedom to do that. And in the nature of what negotiations are, that is clearly uncertain as to how those work out. It is a, it is, it is a negotiation. Um, but given that, it's somewhat ironic then that people who are stressing the uncertainty of it seem to be so damn certain about one thing about that. So damn certain that it's going to be worse, you know. But if it is uncertain, you know, how can people be so sure about it? So, a bit of a dilemma there. I think there's several important influences behind all the negativity, um, uh, and that's come up in many sessions over the course of the last couple of days. But I think on the economics of it, I think one of the big ones is that Brexit necessarily means change. As people said, it means a hell of a lot of change. Yet over the past couple of decades, I think people and the disposition generally in Western society, in Britain as much of, as anywhere else, has become increasingly uncomfortable with change. Uh, and that results in, I think in most cases, an impulse to resist it. We want things to generally remain the same, the status quo to continue, because we see that change generally is damaging. And that's become the general worldview as to how things, how things are. And so we've tended to be more attached to the status quo to prefer stability over change. And I think it's because Brexit is one of those things which is an imposed change upon society, which I think informs that instinctive response, not based on the economic models of no interest, not based on, on uh, uh, you know, uh, some interpretation of uncertainty, but I think that's what underlies the suspicion, um, if not pessimism, that people have about this. It's a reaction to the sense that change is going to come uh, imposed upon us. And I think what this means is that for this debate that's going to go on over the next few years, to win more people to see the economic opportunities of Brexit, we need to focus less on with respect to Andreas Less on speculating what the exact form is going to be the outcome of those negotiations of a trading arrangements um, uh, in the future, but instead to take advantage and say we have to take advantage of the benefits of change. Uh, and this isn't only a philosophical argument, it's one of great practical bearing, because what the economy needs, my argument, more than anything else, is a huge shake-up. And we can use Brexit to help with that. Because as has been said by my other speakers, Britain has got huge problems which have got nothing to do with the single market, nothing to do with the EU. They preceded that. But the changes which will happen will be an opportunity uh, uh, to, to, to do something. And this, my final point on this is that the big problem that we have, not so much with Brexit, but with the discussion about Brexit, the economic discussion about Brexit and the ubiquity of that discussion, is that we've developed this sort of economic Brexit obsession. 
this monomania that the most important thing that does affect the economy is Brexit. So every economic story is looked at through a Brexit lens. So the, uh, you know, the Marmite story uh, uh, was perceived as a Brexit story, rather than being a discussion about you know, the problems of high street, street retailers and problems of inflation and problems of uh, prices going up of imports. That was a Brexit story. Or the fall in the sterling, which uh, Marin's talked about, the fall in the sterling, which contributed to those uh, rising import prices in food, was presented as a Brexit story. Where if you look at it, Brexit, I think Marin said, uh, the sterling has been overvalued for many, for, for many years. You know, OECD, IMF, all have been saying, we have an overvalued currency. We, and why do we have an overvalued currency? We were unable to be competitive and then all this money's been coming in, the finance sector and so on, property, driving up the currency. So the currency has been waiting to fall for a very long time. Uh, and all that's happened is that Brexit, the anxieties of a Brexit, becomes the trigger for that, but we view it as blaming Brexit for it. And so that uh, way in which every economic story, and we're going to see many more of it, anything to do with economics is going to be funneled into this narrow view that it's a Brexit story one way or the other. And I think the problem with that then is that it, it means that we misses the opportunity. In short, Brexit becomes the number one economic issue, when I would argue much more important is that we should be focusing on the issue of that abysmal productivity record. Britain's sad productivity record for a very long time and a productivity gap with the rest of Europe is a thing that's going to affect British prosperity and Britain's trading relationships, Britain's trading success with the rest of Europe, much, much more than what is the uh, uh, eventual, uh, uh, eventual outcome of the, the trade negotiations. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs> now, I feel, I feel sure the panellists are going to want to have a go at each other, uh, but I'm not going to let them just yet. I'm going to take, take, take the debate uh, out to you now, so... I wanted to uh, ask you about the point that you raised, Phil, and uh, other panels on discomfort with change. Yeah. One thing that's really striking on productivity levels is, in terms of any post-war recession, uh, there's been no uh, improvement in productivity, or, or hardly any to speak of, since the 2008 financial crisis. And if you look at the charts for all other post-war recessions, it's absolutely astonishing, the comparison, uh, in, in terms of that. At the same time, we've got the highest employment levels, yeah, record employment levels uh, in the UK. Um, and it, you, it seems to point to possibly that discomfort with change. In other words, we missed out on the opportunity of the financial crisis to say, what of what we are doing is good and what is, uh, needs to be cut back on and shouldn't be uh, being financed you know, through uh, low interest rates. So if we've got such high employment levels but such appalling productivity, are we really, do we have the stomach to use the opportunity for Brexit to uh, have the shake-up that you're saying that we need? And what has held us back up until now? You know, from 2008 through to uh, the Brexit decision in 2016, that's eight years of not taking some hard decisions. Why will that change? Yeah, I'm, I'm confused, basically. Uh, so I, I need someone to explain this to me. Um, so we, we've got Brexit because of... Uh, or one of the main reasons for Brexit was for um, getting uh, our laws back to make our own laws. And one of those... Uh, most of those laws were trade laws with the European Union, um, it appears, uh, as typified by the banana law. Uh, the mythical banana law. It was not actually true, but anyway, let's go on from that. So we've decided in the future that we've got grade one bananas and Europe has decided that they've got a different type of grade one banana. So they're 
bananas are straight, our bananas are curly. Um, so that's great. So now we go over to uh, the wholesalers in France and buy a ton of grade one bananas. At some point, someone's going to have to go through those grade one bananas and sift through them and say, right, this is, this, these, these aren't curly enough for British consumers. So we're going to have to either throw those away or make those grade two bananas. Um, it appears to me that that is really wasteful. That is really inefficient. That is someone that sat, sat in, the, in between us, basically <laughs> spending a lot of time doing bananas. So, uh, um, so my question is, is basically, obviously, normal uh, standardisation between governments and between trade bodies would be the way to resolve that issue. Typically, we will use the trade body that it, or the largest trade blocks um, uh, standardisation. So Europe or America or China will be probably making decisions for our standardisation. Um, that means that we, in 99% of the cases, won't be on the board of any of these people, uh, uh, decision makers and will be beholden to these larger blocks to decide what bananas we have in this country. A toy quiz question and a substantive one. And the toy quiz question is this. Who said in the Telegraph in November 2013, I think I've got the date right, and I'll have to paraphrase it because we can't, you know, we're 20,000 leagues under the earth, so we can't, there's no service. <laughs> Who said roughly the problem with this country is not the EU, it is poor management, short-termism, low investment and poor productivity. Roughly. Who said that? Exactly so. Boris Johnson. Uh, well done. I didn't get anything from the panel. Now, um, we, we, we didn't want to crowdsourcing anything. Since I could do joined up writing, I was hearing in every media platform that we had something called a balance of payments deficit, that we were very <laughs> bad at paying our way in trade with the world. And that has continued forever. Rather more recently, I learnt. And if I'm wrong, you'll correct me, but I believe it to be true that we are the largest recipient beneficiary of inward investment in the EU. Mm -hmm. Indeed, so much larger that we <coughs> get more invest inward investment from outside the EU than all the other EU nations combined. Now, thinking of those two things, a long-term balance of payments deficit, <laughs> meaning we're not very good at trading with the world. And I think I also read that we sell more to Ireland than to India. Well, do you know, something of the kind. Now, all those things being broadly true, how's it going to read in the future? What about that inward investment? What's going to happen to that? What sort of decisions are people going to take? And will Dr. Liam Fox, single-handed, reverse our balance of payments deficit? <laughs> okay. I just wanted to talk about BHS. Because um, BHS seems... I'll be, I'm going to make myself really unpopular now, so I'm ready for it. I have uh, thick skin. Um, I think BHS is largely a success story. Because it's an organisation that was on its knees. It needed to go. Uh, its pensioners have been protected... Uh, and 
All the, the whole public outcry that it's a disaster, the DWP committee, uh, everything that says that this shouldn't have happened, I just think is wrong. And if we are going to solve our productivity puzzle, it's all those organisations like that that have to go. And I think we have to be willing to be a bit unpopular uh, and say, that is a good news story. Andreas made the comments about the uh, European economic area. Um, and he, he, I think, well, certainly to me, he managed to give the impression that the, the plans that might be available through that were a little vague. You used the comment, I don't think anybody else knows uh, the uh, provisions as well as I do. I, or at least I don't know anyone that does, you said. Um, but can I just point out that, it, that, that, that there is uh, a plan already drawn up by the Bruges Group, this pamphlet here, which is publicly available, which makes a six-stage proposal about leaving the European Union and regaining, for example, our right of initiative to, to deal with foreign uh, countries and, and, and set trade agreements with them um, through the EEA and uh, the... Um, Yes, well, I'm not going to be able to revise it quickly enough. The EFTA, that's right. Essentially the Norway model. Um, now, you seem to be in favour of it. I'd be interested to know what the reaction of the other three panellists is to the proposal, essentially, Andreas is making. Uh, the plan he's talking about is called Flexit. It's by Dr Richard North, which everyone should Google if they're interested. And I'm amazed, Andreas, that you said you've never heard anyone talk about it. Dr North has been saying this for years. It was in his IEA uh, Brexit competition and was rejected. I mean, if you haven't already talked to him about it, I'm sure he'd love to listen to you because you're saying exactly the same things that he's saying. Um, and just to make one slightly different point about uh, standards and standards being made, these standards are increasingly made at a global level. So to say we won't be on the seat making these rules is completely false. Um, if you think of cucumber regulations, the Executive Secretary of the United Nations Economic Commission for Europe has a blog. He wrote a blog piece saying, blame us, blame the UNECE cucumber regulations, not the EU. They don't make them, they're handed them and they enforce them. And we gain the right to be represented ourselves again on these bodies by leaving the EU. Uh, okay, so I'm going to take the, the, the panel from, from, from left to right as I'm looking. Uh, you don't have to answer everything. Just pick out the things that, are, that interest you. Okay. If you want to have a go at your fellow, fellow panellists while you're at it, that's, that's fine as well. Productivity, let me start questions. with productivity. You'll hear people endlessly, relentlessly talking about the productivity puzzle and how we can't understand why we haven't uh, raised levels of productivity since the crisis and before. Now, I don't see this as a puzzle at all. It seems to be to be remarkably straightforward. There are a couple of elements to it. The first is super, super low interest rates, which give us capital misallocation all over the place. The lady here talked about BHS. You're absolutely right. It's a rubbish company selling rubbish stuff at rubbish places in the high street that nobody wanted to buy. Um, so it makes complete sense for it to have disappeared from the high street and any capital tied up in it to be used elsewhere. Now, that isn't happening often enough because super low interest rates keep companies that we call zombie companies on the go, uh, putting too much supply into the market. So, you know, product increases aren't required in those areas. Now, the other thing which is not discussed enough and is controversial but very important is the way our productivity, I think, is kept down by our tax credit system. Now, if you look at the way we arrange our in-work Credit, tax credits, they're designed to encourage people to work, which is quite right, but they specifically encourage part-time work. Yes. 
And if you have an awful lot of people, large part of the population, working for 16 hours each in part-time jobs, you naturally have a fall-off in productivity because you have people who are prepared to work for much lower wages than really they should, which allows a lot of our big companies to, to declare higher profits than really they should be able to. So we have a low-wage, part-time group of employees, and that automatically leads on to lower productivity than it would otherwise. Now, this is a question that it's, it's very hard to discuss and very hard to discuss how it could be resolved, but nonetheless, there isn't a puzzle here. What there is is a working tax credit system that incentivizes things that lead to low productivity. It's, uh, you know, how, how that is resolved is another question altogether. Um, the EEA, I'm not going to answer all the questions. I mean, everyone will have more, more interesting arguments than me. But on the matter of the Bruce Group, the EEA, etc. One thing I would say there is that deciding at this point how one thinks one might be part of the existing EU might not be the best way to go about it because the EU, well, before Brexit, we talked a lot about the rubbish state of the EU and how difficult things were there and the internal arguments and the internal conflicts, particularly perhaps between the Eastern Bloc and the Western Bloc. Now, we've suddenly started talking about the EU as it was one great big unified bloc working against us. Now, that's not true. The EU remains a big group of scrabbling countries who disagree with each other on all sorts of things and may easily, within the next couple of years, find itself to be a very different group. I was talking to um, um, somebody the other day, who had some influence, who was saying that he expects within the next three or four years the EU to be divided into two, an Eastern Bloc and a Western Bloc, not a Northern Bloc and a Southern Bloc, as lots of people expect. So, you know, there's already a, a two-speed thing going on, and what we think we might join now uh, is something else might exist in two years. So I'm, I'm very loath to come down on the EEA after whatever, uh, because I have no idea what the European Union is going to be by the time we get to the end of our negotiations. Uh, just very, try and deal with a few quickly. The thing about the EEA, Andreas and others, is you describe a three-stage process, it might be a six-stage process or whatever. The difficulty is knowing that you're going to get to the end of the process. And I can well see on your plan how we get to stage two and never get to stage three. And I think the difficulty, and you acknowledge yourself the difficulty of getting to stage three, and the difficulty with that is that it underlies, it undermines the fundamental non-economic reasons that actually drove the vote for Brexit. And to, walk, to, walk, to ignore those, in my view, would be politically pretty suicidal, but certainly very, very difficult in this country. It would undermine our democracy a great deal more, than, uh, and with a price, that a great deal more than we could actually imagine. Um, on the standardisation of bananas and other products, I just want to say one thing which isn't a complete answer, although the bananas allow me to illustrate it. Any arrangement we have for trading with other blocs, including the European Union, does not have to be reciprocal. It is perfectly possible for Britain to adopt a unilateral free trade stance where we face tariffs on our exports but do not impose them on our imports. In fact, that was our policy for much of the 19th century and very successful it was too. So I would say, as a temporary measure at least, and a temporary measure that might go on for several decades, I would say one policy that we could adopt is to say that anything, any object that is legally for sale inside the European Union and meets their standards should be on sale in Britain. Because we've trusted their standards for the last 40 years, why shouldn't we continue to do so? And we could think about that in other arrangements as well. So we'd have a choice in bananas on our shelves. We'd have a variety of curves that we could... Um, uh, we could exploit, but it's more broader than bananas. It applies to other goods, electrical goods, and so on. If it's good enough for the Europeans, of course it's good enough for us. They're perfectly civilized people who produce safe and attractive products. So 
Just bear that in mind. It does not have to be reciprocal. And, but I want to return, I want to finish with this question about the um, why do we not take advantage of the recession. And I entirely agree. It, we have the wrong domestic policies in place, not simply in relation to the working families tax credit, not simply in relation to our monetary policy, but also our Keynesian fiscal policy, which piled on debt in the years between 2008 and 2010, deliberately piled it on ahead of that election, and government spending was more or less on free vend, and we haven't properly addressed that since then. And I'll add one other example, which is a slightly more middle-class example, I fully agree with the working families tax credit point, and that is that the, the cliff edge that's been created by George Osborne in the personal tax system at around the £100,000 mark is actually disincentivizing middle-class professionals from working um, more, more than full, working full-time. So you can go down in various parts of the country, you'll find doctors and people like that working three days a week, four days a week, because the tax system is so screwed up that if they go over a certain limit, they're not actually making any money for the next 10,000, next 20,000 that they're earning. And we need a sensible, simpler tax system, and we need a stable regime for savings and pensions which has changed so much in the last few years that only a mug would put money into a pension at the moment because you have no idea how it's going to be treated in tax terms in the future. And that's something else we need to address if we're to increase savings. You should definitely save into your pension. Definitely. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> my main um, thesis is, or my main argument is that if we were to spend the next couple of years discussing uh, trading, arrangements and discussing the various permutations of what could come out, then we are missing a golden opportunity to actually discuss what is important. The trading arrangements do not make a country prosperous. We could be in the best trading relationships that have ever been imagined with other parts of the world, but if we're producing at, on average, as we know, goods at 45% less than Holland, 35% productivity less than Germany, 30% less than France, even 10% less than Italy, 5% lower productivity than Spain. If we're not able to compete, we can be in the best arrangements in the world and we won't sell much. The reason we have, and I won't go into the, the details <coughs> of the balance of payments uh, because that's I think, an interesting point for us to discuss the FDI side, which keeps the whole thing going. But the reason we've been in a, an increasing balance of uh, our current account deficit since 1984 is that we're less and less competitive, which comes down to the productivity issue. So if we were, say, it would be a, a huge missed opportunity if we see what's going on and the changes which are being created by the decision that the people made four months ago into a narrow discussion about different permutations of trade arrangement, we'll A, be seeing things upside down, because trade doesn't drive prosperity, it's productivity that drives prosperity. And secondly, we will be distracted from the uh, issues which we should be focusing. So just to answer that point, you know, why should anything be different? And I agree with you, you know, we've done a very bad job, or a very bad job has been done over the last seven years since the financial crash, and a very bad job has been done in the last 20, 30 years. Um, and so nothing automatic is going to change. The only way that things will change 
will be a continuation of the sort of discussion which began around Brexit, i.e. a discussion which engages people. Because I don't have any faith in the politicians coming to this realisation, but we had for a couple of months, and even though those on both sides at the top you know, did an abysmal uh, quality of, of, uh, of debate, it engaged people in trying to make a change. And I would like to see that sort of debate extended into the economy, not over discussing trading arrangements, which is going to bore people senseless over the next few years, but into the things which underpin our prosperity. And that is the productivity. Just to fit, I mean, I don't like throwing out facts, but just one fact. There's a myth, to end with this myth, that the single market has been good for British uh, economy, that's been good for prosperity. Actually, the fact shows otherwise. We don't know what the counterfactual, we don't know how Britain would have performed since 1993 not in the single market, but we do know for sure is that in the 20 years before being in the single market, British productivity increased on average by 2.3% a year. Since being in the single market, in the 20 year, two years since we joined, it has been 1.4% a year. Now, we might quibble over odd 1.5%, but basically, productivity has been much worse, nearly half as bad in terms of growth since being in this great single market, which is supposed to be dominating and, and determining our future, than we were before. Single market put to one side, it's going to change, but the bigger changes are the ones we need to make to actually deal with the underlying problems. Forgive me if I pick on you. That's perfectly okay. <coughs> but I guess, you know, you said earlier that the problems that we have in the UK have nothing to do with the single market. And, you know, there's an extensive discussion about the sources of low productivity growth or the sources of high debt. And I agree with Marianne that debt is, I think, the mother of many problems that the UK, face, uh, UK faces. But if indeed these domestic problems are all unrelated to Brexit or the single market membership, then why is there such a fuss about being a member of the single market? Now, there's a separate argument about the... how we run our lives. No, no, hold on. There's a separate argument about the politics of it all. But economically, if you believe that Brexit will solve your domestic problems or help you solve your pro pro domestic problems, then you will have to first establish that there's a connection between, between the two, which you said and many others here on the panel have said that there isn't. So, you know, you, you can't have it both ways. It's not quite and, you know, the, the trade, the contribution of trade to productivity growth, it is whatever it is. The fact of the matter is that £250 billion of exports into the EU, it's a meaningful amount of money, and it matters to a lot of people. I think on the EEA and EFTA thing, Incidentally, I was just really referring to people who may be schmucks like me, who until they encountered Richard's work had never seen this disgust at that level of detail. Um, we will all have beautiful speculations as to what the Brexit vote meant and why people voted the way they did. We will never be able to agree on it. What we will be able to agree on it is what the question was. And the question was, do you want to leave the EU? And the answer was yes. The EEA is not the EU. It is just the single market of the EU. And obviously many of the Brexiteers accuse many of the Remainers of believing that the people are quote-unquote stupid, whatever that exactly means. But the fact of the matter is there was one question and we had one answer. Whatever the reasons for the answer, the answer was we will leave the EU. In my view, life is complicated. 
it's worthwhile being patient and working with people who you have worked and negotiated with for a very long time. Try and do something that keeps all your options open and engage with your fellow European states to change Europe and change the UK's role in Europe from one where it's been sailing along in a sidecar, leaving all the important decisions to Angela Merkel and the Germans for many, many years, to one where the UK could assume a much more central role in an environment where the only point of interest is an economic trading relationship. No political integration, no common foreign policy, no harmonization of immigration rules, domestic affairs, or legal system by the European Court of Justice. There's nothing to lose. But it will take time. I mean, if anybody really believes you can solve all this within two years, two years, I mean, it's a, it's a pipe dream. Can I say something about productivity and in particular the relationship between trade and productivity? Um, one uh, figure that uh, was sometimes quoted in the uh, referendum campaign was that GDP per capita in the UK since 1973, that is when we joined the EU, increased by 103%. And that was greater than um, productivity increase in, I think, any other major developed country, greater than France, greater than Germany, greater than um, uh, the US, etc. Now, how much of that was due to the EU? Obviously, there are a lot of other things happening, but I've seen estimates from one very distinguished economic historian that about 10% of that was due to EU membership. So it is arguable that EU membership has had a big and substantial increase on UK productivity. That's the first point. How does trade in particular, which is a very important aspect of EU membership, how does that affect productivity? Well, I can describe a couple of mechanisms. One is... Um, uh, well, uh, if I go to the EEA uh, mechanism, um, if we join the EEA and have a free trading agreement, so we're not part of a customs union, we have a free trading agreement, that would mean that... Um, Exporters to Europe would need to um, undergo customs inspections. They'd need to produce certificates of origin. This would be considerably disruptive of trading relationships. In particular, there are sophisticated international value chains where goods, where components are shipped across um, the channel time and time again. Presumably this is done because this is the most efficient way of doing it. This takes place in uh, automobiles, it takes place with Airbus, it takes place in many other sectors. So even if we could get an EEA uh, deal, uh, still um, uh, try, uh, these, these things will considerably um, affect our productivity. My, I'm going to go back to the, the political uh, problem. My question is this, why do you think that the government, and the, the national government, now Brit British government, doesn't level with the people? Why does it avoid just levelling with us? Because at the very beginning, um, you know, it was, very, it was acknowledged and there's a total agreement that the, the debt is a huge problem and that the public are making demands on politicians that are unrealistic. We're demanding good public services, say. We can't get them, the government can't act, its hands are tied, it's, it's groaning under all of this debt. Why doesn't it just say that? Because it never actually does level with us, it never squares with the people. And people blame migrants and all sorts of things because the government just doesn't come clean. And not only do people make these unreasonable, you say, or unrealistic demands for decent public services, which are 
actually, they're unrealistic, they're not unreasonable. But they also demand, they make demands against growth. So you have all sorts of, um, you know, infrastructure or potential um, uh, industrial development that is actually very unpopular because people are actually demanding, you know, making demands against growth. So back to my question, why does the government just not level with us, tell us how serious this is so we can have a grown-up, adult kind of conversation um, among the people? Uh, well, just quickly, the, the, the most important aspect uh, of the Brexit um, vote in terms of the economy is that it takes away any excuse that our government may have uh, for not acting and not taking the... Uh, the, the steps necessary to re-stimulate our economy, economy by saying that it's not allowed by EU rules and regulations. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the, that is the most important aspect of it from the economic point of view. And I think, you know, I completely agree with the points that the problems we face are to do with our domestic economy and everything else in relation to trade is a sideshow. So, you know, the, just one small example of this today, the government is already because it is trying to grapple with the future now, outside the EU, it's floated the idea of cutting corporation tax to 10% in order to attract more businesses into this country. That would not, they wouldn't get, be able to get away with that if we were still in the EU, as yes, has been seen by... Uh, no, yes, well, they would. Look at the pressure that Ireland is under, uh, which has a higher corporation yeah, tax now at the, the moment, and is in trouble with the, uh, with the EU. Yeah, uh, so much of the analysis of why people voted to leave was because of regional differences and how prosperous the South East is, yet uh, the North, Northern Ireland, uh, Wales aren't really prospering as well as London. Um, so how can we ensure that um, these places swim and not sink once we leave? Because of course London will come out glimmering still, it'll still be a financial capital for some rich sheiks or rich Russians, but how do we ensure that um, these regional differences um, aren't exacerbated uh, in our free trade deals? I'm perfectly willing to accept that productivity is a problem. Uh, I'd like to know what the panel think are our immediate opportunities to stimulate productivity and what our focus should be in the future uh, in terms of productivity and um, growth in general. I've, I've run small businesses and large projects, and I was also an end, uh, also ran in the IA Brexit competition. It took me a month to get it down to two and a half thousand words. <laughs> now, each industrial se in sector already has its own rules and regulations, so, but I cannot identify any benefit of the EU. The silly health and safety, the daft employment rules, and of course the evils of VAT. I can't wait 20 years. I want the whole lot torn up now. No, I completely agree that productivity and not trade drives growth, but it's completely naive to suggest that productivity is not fostered by trade along with investment as the purchase of capital goods by firms. The, the notion that the single market has had no impact on UK GDP is, quite frankly, difficult to accept because you can't prove the counterfactual. Work, admittedly estimates, but synthetic counterfactuals, differences and differences done by Brunel University, have shown that, as far as we can prove that, it's had a very positive effect on the economy. However, that's not to say that you shouldn't leave the EU. I've seen estimates of up to 15% of GDP at the cost of abolishing slavery that the UK decided to undertake. So I agree that there's an opportunity here for us with an economic cost, but that shouldn't be ignored as a cost. The opportunity that's presented there in terms of market adjustments, be that unilateral trade liberalisation or driving down wages to make us more competitive, will work over time, but will have massive economic and social costs. Uh, Patrick Minford, who's the biggest advocate of 
unilateral trade liberalization openly admits that it could cost up to three million jobs. And driving down wages, that's the cost of living, which is incredibly regressive. And frankly, the people who make that kind of market-based adjustment are often the people who won't bear the brunt of those costs. I see no plan. Well, I know Andreas Otherwise. thinks the withdrawal agreement is very important, but I wonder what the other three panellists think about it. And I ask the question because I'm genuinely worried as to whether or not we'd be able to get one, least of all whether we could get one in two years. Um, ideally, it seems to me, if the lawyers could say this was possible, and I think it probably would be, we would give Article 50 notice tomorrow and say, right, we're out in 28 days' time. But economically, what would be the consequence of doing something like that? Fine. Thank you very much for all your points and contributions. So, a couple of minutes each panel. Andreas, would you like to start? Anything you want to pick up on? That's fine by me. Uh, unilateral tariff trade liberalisation, a great idea, but, but uh, if non-tariff barriers account for 98.5% of restrictions on trade flows, then changing tariffs doesn't really make any difference. And a 20% depreciation in the pound is already... Um, uh, provided a lot of benefits for uh, UK producers. So, you know, it's not going to swing the needle. I guess, um, you know, who, who knows how to increase productivity growth? My desert island um, answer is to abolish bank deposit insurance, but, uh, you know, um, I'm sure there are many other ways of doing it. Um, I mean, it wasn't a massive problem prior to 2007. I mean, debt is the main problem. There's too much debt, and recovering from a banking crisis of the scale that we had here eight years ago will take 20 years or longer. Um, regional differences, I have no idea. Um, and as far as I can tell, the government has been doing nothing but leveling with the UK population about the difficult economic scenario environment for eight years. Um, it just can't make it go away. Okay, thank you very much. Phil. Well, productivity, uh, the key point is investment, right? The key point is investing in technology. And on your point about, which you agree with, but you say that trade is equally important, you have to, or, or as important, or is complementary important. The point is to distinguish, in our minds, between what we or how we produce things efficiently, which involves investment in technology, and as a complement to that, not a substitute, a complement to that, people having the skills to be able to use that technology to, to good effect. But that is very different then to being able to sell those goods. You can sell them up the road, you can sell them to Russia, you can sell them to Europe. Selling them is a function of them being competitive enough on those markets. So the logical starting point is having the investment and complementary to that, the skills to be able to produce things uh, efficiently and therefore to be able to sell them. The models that you refer to make the classic mistake of equating correlation with causation. Yes, you can show that if somebody is very good at exporting, they will have higher productivity. The models say it's the higher exporting which leads to the higher productivity. I say no, that's imposed into the model. It's if you've got higher productivity, you can trade better. So it's, 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 it's looking at production being the logical starting point. Now, how do we get that greater investment? One answer, you know, what would be the starting point? I would go to what Merrin said, and let's look at this question of the, the zombie economy which we have out there, because that's what we have. A feature, uh, which the BSA, BHS uh, uh, comment was referring to, is that we've got lower productivity relative to the rest of the world, but less insolvencies going on. And that's one of the people said, oh, the economy's doing okay. There's not many bankruptcies going on out there. We have a situation where we have low productivity, and we have a lot of devices 
from you know, tax credits through to ultra-low interest rates, through to all the forms of subsidies and, and regulations and stuff which are supporting the status quo economy as it is. It goes back to my earlier point about change. So we are directly, indirectly, uh, 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 consciously and, 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 and uh, uh, unconsciously propping up through our policies, in fact, European policies help that, propping up a zombie economy. And that's what's stopping productivity diffused throughout the economy. It's a, it's a problem of the inability or the way that that congests the economy by having all these low productivity uh, companies which are stopping the ones that could be investing, investing uh, and being able to create a, a, a more pr productive starting point. So it's that way in which a, a zombie economy hollows out things and congests and put a block on other people investing. So the one thing we need to do is start taking away those props. And that's a very big change because that is, to conclude, you know, changing the whole way we've operated over the last 30 years because it's saying change is more important than stability in the status quo. And as I said at the beginning, we've got into a situation of the opposite. I think we need a lot more change because what we have at the moment is not good enough by far. I think the Brexit can actually force a bit of change, and if we can respond to that and take advantage of that and having a debate, we might be able to shake up and change what's been going over the last 20, 30 years, which has been propping up the zombie economy. And then business can get out there and do some productivity uh, investment. Okay, okay. <laughs> Highly productive contribution there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to try and answer or comment on two questions. Why don't the politicians level with us? Because I, I rather agree they have not leveled with us. And I, I offer you an answer, which is that in 2008, when the financial crisis occurred, the government of the day um, took the view that Keynesian expenditure was the right answer, and a whole bunch of economists almost universally supported that view. It was a sort of consensus group think. And, and I don't like to criticise a Conservative government, being a Conservative myself, but I'm ruthless in doing so on this occasion, nobody in the Conservative Party answered back. And we accepted that consensus in 2010, and we've continued to accept it all the way through. So we've never actually explained this to the people. And so when George Osborne tries to do something like uh, change the tax credit system and so on, everybody kicks back at it, including Conservatives, because nobody has put the other narrative to them. Philip Hammond has an opportunity to do that. When he says he's going to reset domestic um, uh, financial policy, um, I rather hope that he was going to reset it in the right direction come the autumn statement. He may still do so. I have no idea what's going to be in the autumn statement, but I suspect he has simply inherited and will continue to inherit this myth that we can carry on spending our way and printing money out of our way out of this uh, economic zombie economy that we've got. And I hope that's not the case. The regional question, which is the other one I want to come to, is one of the most interesting and taxing questions to emerge from the whole referendum debate, because an awful lot of people, and by the way, the southeast outside London did vote for Brexit, but an awful lot of people had their eyes opened to the state of the economy and the state of life in many of our regional cities. I, I, I have written a little bit about this. I don't have. There are no straightforward answers, and I don't claim to have lots of answers. But I do think that if we actually redirected money we don't have away from some massive infrastructure projects that are going on at the moment, and there's one I can think of that has two letters and a number in its name, <laughs> and, and, and actually spent much more modest amounts 
in, in regional infrastructure, and it should be led by what people locally are telling us they want. And I think what you'd find is very often what they want is very affordable, because, you know, 10 million quid goes an awful long way in many of these places. If we were to do that and actually work with them, then you would find, I think, that we could actually start to address and put some of the right in physical infrastructure and then the broadband infrastructure and the other things in place that would help at least to create that platform for people in the regions. That wouldn't be enough, but it's a problem we all have to grapple with and tackle and really think hard about and not ignore now that the referendum is over and put it back on the back burner. Okay, thank you. And finally, Merrin. Regional. Let me start briefly with, with, uh, with uh, the problem of uh, regional prosperity. Um, I, one, education, education, education. You know, there, is a, there are huge outbursts of innovation and crea creativity across the, north, across the North and in Scotland, but they are finding it very difficult to hire. If you talk to an entrepreneur, a technology entrepreneur in the North, you talk to an, uh, a technology entrepreneur in Dundee, they will tell you they can't find people to hire because the schools and colleges are not training to the level that they require, particularly when it comes to, to IT issues. So that's a problem. Infrastructure is another huge problem. HS2 is, is designed in a very uh, southern-centric kind of way. It's designed to leave from London. But if we live in the north, we're not leaving from London. And, uh, you know, sometimes we want to go from Dundee to Birmingham or Edinburgh to Manchester, whatever it is, and we can't get there without changing trains. So, you know, the infrastructure up there is all designed to get people from the north to London. And, you know, sometimes we want to go to other places. I live in the north, obviously. <laughs> and sometimes I want to go to other places than here while I'm enjoying today enormously. Um, the other point I will just make, and this is just a much wider point, is that Trade deals are important. The single market, uh, we think, is important. We don't know because we haven't got any counterfactual and we only have the past. We don't know what will be to us in the future. But in the end, people just trade. It is the natural state of people. We trade with each other, from bartering cars in the playground to having small companies when we grow up to working for big companies when we're, when we're older. We, we trade, we trade, we trade. It doesn't make any difference to us whether we have a trade deal with someone or not. If we have a product we want to buy or sell, we buy or sell it. And when I talk to uh, small and medium-sized companies, which, which I do a lot of, in one of my roles, particularly in Europe, no one ever says to me, it's a bit of a bugger, I wanted to sell my mattresses to China, but we've not got a trade deal, so I can't. They just sell mattresses to China. And on that note, thank, can we thank our panel? Thank you for listening to this Institute of Ideas podcast. If you would like to listen to more of our podcasts or subscribe to them, go to instituteofideas.com forward slash podcast.